Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're holding the middle of chapter 17, page 241. And he explained that what does the Torah mean? That it's close for each and every Jew, that it's near and dear for each and every Jew to love Hashem and to lead a Jewish life. That it's every Jew could develop an inner life, an inner feeling, inner connection to Yiddishkeit. And he said, because every person is in control of his mind. And when you're in control of your mind, you could control, control your heart. Because it's nature. It's a nature that Hashem created a human being. That a human being is in control. In control. Your mind is in control over your heart. You can control your instincts, your desires, your impulses. When something matters to you, when you care about something, you check your, check your instincts, check your impulses. So you feel like doing it, so you overcome. The problem is that material things matter to us. Spiritual things, godly things, don't matter to us, naturally. So this is where the mind comes in, awareness. Without awareness, you can't possibly exercise this natural ability that Hashem gave each and every human being mind over matter because yes, things you care about you can check your impulse check your instincts but if you don't care about it you won't have the ability to check your instincts so first you have to be aware then you have to meditate and you have to reflect and that's in control of every human being every person is in control of his mind you can think about things you you don't like, but you think about it, and you meditate, and you reflect, and you contemplate, and then you develop a feeling. And once you develop a feeling, at least in your mind, at least a cold feeling, an intellectual feeling, an abstract feeling, once you develop a feeling in your mind, then you have the ability to control your heart. You can check your heart. And even though your heart is cold, you don't feel a passionate love and desire towards godliness. But nevertheless, you overcome your nature and you do the right thing. You decide, you choose to live your life in a way that's consistent with this truth that you're aware of, that you understand, that you comprehend, that you know that you ought to, you ought to feel I don't, but I ought to feel it. Because this is the truth. Just because I don't feel it doesn't make it, doesn't change the truth. And therefore, since I ought to feel it, but I don't, nevertheless, I'm going to live my life in a way that's consistent with this truth. So then you can exercise this natural ability that Hashem gave, inherent ability that Hashem gave each and every one of us, that the mind controls the heart. 
And now, and that's how also Maimonides explains, for example, it says in the Torah, the mitzvah to love Hashem. Maimonides asks, I mean, how can you love Hashem? How can you command someone to love? Either you love or you don't love. You can't pretend to love. And he says the mitzvah is not on the love. The mitzvah is to know. To know Hashem. And not just to know superficially, generally, oh, I know Hashem exists. No, but a detailed knowledge. A specific knowledge, a real knowing, a real engagement of the mind. And then, inevitably, that will lead to the heart. And even if not, you fulfill the mitzvah. You have done what is humanly possible. You know. You're aware. You meditate. You contemplate. You reflect. And as long, as he says here, as long as that love, that cold love, that intellectual love leads you to action, to thought, speech, and action, that's all the Torah expects of you. This the Torah expects of each and every Jew. Each and every one of us is capable of living up to this expectation. To develop at least a cold love, an awareness, an understanding. And a firm conviction and decision to live your life based on this understanding. To connect with godliness, live a godly life. Every thought should be godly, every speech should be godly, every action should be godly. And that's where we left off last week. And now, he's going to address, as he mentioned earlier, that the tzaddik, he's in control over his heart. Versus the rasha is not in control of his heart. We find by the tzaddik, Hashem says to his heart, and tzaddikim who emulate Hashem, also they speak to their heart, because they can control their heart. Versus a rasha, it says, the rasha says in his heart. The tzaddik is in control of his heart, and the rasha is under the control of his heart. So it seems a contradiction. First you said that only the tzaddik is in control of his heart. Anyone that's not the tzaddik is not in control of his heart. Then you say that only the rasha is not in control of his heart. That means that anyone above the Rasha, the Bainani, is in control of his heart. The answer is, there are three different levels. There is a level of a tzaddik who is in control of his heart. Even without this mind, he's in control of his heart. He has totally transformed his heart, his emotions. He's totally transformed his essence, and therefore his heart is in the right place. He can turn on his heart in an instant. His heart responds and feels only godly things. Cares about godly things. Responds to godly things. And is totally turned off by anything that's not godly and not genuine, not authentic. So he's in total control of his heart. It's natural. As natural as it is to us to be inclined toward materialism, it's as natural as him to be, feel passionate about godliness. He doesn't need to go through his mind. It's just he's in total control of his heart. That's the time. Anyone who's not the tzaddik doesn't have that type of control. The baby doesn't have that control. We're not in control of our heart. We have to go through our mind because godliness is something that's distant for us. It's remote for us. It's abstract. 
And unless we truly know and have knowledge and awareness and concentration, then it's, it's just too, too, too remote for us to connect. Only as a result of the mind, then in certain them they could develop a feeling, a passion towards godliness. And in many them, if not most, perhaps they don't have the ability to develop a, a full-blown passion, fiery, passionate feeling towards godliness. But at least minimally, they could develop an awareness and at least a cold emotion, intellectual type of emotion, where their mind tells them, this is truth, and I ought to live my life based on truth, not on whim, and not how the wind blows, and not on instinct, and not in the moment, and not impulsive, but do the right thing. Whether I'm up to it or not up to it, I feel like it, I don't feel like it. Go against your nature. My heart is cold, go against your nature. But you can have enough of an awareness to allow the nature that Hashem gave us to kick in, the nature of mind over matter. That we're not animals. When it comes to things that matter to us, we are in total control of our instincts. When it comes to business, the things that we really care about, we're in control of ourselves. When it comes to our health, our self-preservation, we're in total control of ourselves. There's no excuses. When you're in total control, you check your instincts. So if you can have, develop enough of a mind, enough of awareness, a presence of mind to understand and relate to godliness in a very serious way, in a sincere way, in a real way, then you exercise that God-given ability, that natural ability of mind over matter. You can control yourself. So you control your heart through the mind. But you control your heart. You go against your nature. And you do the right thing, and think the right thing, and speak the right thing, think in a godly way, speak in a godly way, and act in a godly way. Then comes the rush. The rush is totally out of control. Not only isn't he in the level of the tzaddik, he's not even in the level of the baby, even through the mind, even when he thinks, and he contemplates, and he meditates, and he reflects, and he's aware, and he's knowledgeable, it has no effect on his heart. That's what Alter Rebbe says now. This is true. This is true of everyone except he who is truly wicked. That is, not the Benini who is considered like a Russia, but one who is truly a Russia. In this case, it cannot be said that his mind is master over his heart. On the contrary, our sages state that the wicked are under the control of their heart, but their heart is not under their control at all. They are unable to master the desires of their heart, for their mind has no active control over it. This also resolves an apparent contradiction. The statement, Sadiqim have control over their heart, indicates that anyone of a lesser rank, including a Benini, is not in control of his heart, while the statement that only the wicked are under the control of their heart implies that anyone outside the category of Russia, even a Benini, is in control of his heart. Where then does a Benini actually stand? The previous discussion of the mastery of mind over heart explains this point. There are actually not two alternatives of either being in control of one's heart or controlled by it, but three. The tzaddik controls his heart. He can arouse the love of God in his heart directly without resorting to his mind as a medium of influence. The rasha, on the other hand, not only does not control his heart, but is controlled by it. 
The Benaniel, though not in control of his heart, as is at Sadiq, rules his heart by way of his mind, which is under his control. To a certain extent, then, that is, as regards the practical effect of his heart on his thoughts, speech and action, the Benani does in fact control his heart. Therefore, the Alter Rebbe says of the Russia, his heart is not under his control at all, emphasizing that he is unable to influence his heart even by means of his mind. So he says their heart is completely not in control, not even like the Benini. Even when they have contemplation and awareness, they have no control over the heart. Their heart is in total control. They just follow every whim. They follow every instinct. They follow every impulse. They have zero checks, zero balances. This is a Russia, a true Russia. And he calls a Russia beemis. What do you mean a true Russia? Because we learned earlier in chapter 13, what is the nature of emes? That emes is someone like a Benini. Why is a Benini called emes? A Benini is not consistent. He hasn't totally transformed his being, his core and his essence. But yet, he's called emes because he always has the potential, always has the potential to daven, always has the potential to develop a feeling, an inner life, an inner connection towards godliness. That's why he's called Emes, consistent. So to the Russia, the Alter Rebbe says he's a Russia by Emes. He's truly a Russia. He's truly a Russia because at all times, all places, he always has the potential that his instinct will overwhelm him. Yes, there may be, of course, exceptions. It doesn't mean that the Russia by Emes never does a Torah, never learns Torah, never davens, never does a mitzvah. That's not what he's saying. Of course he does. When is he it's a harder let's <laughs> when is he when there's no test, no challenge. And perhaps sometimes he can even overcome in an unusual way, he can even overcome, you know, a person can choose to go against your nature. But that's something unusual. But as inconsistently, in a consistent way, he is out of control. He is totally subject to his whim, to his impulse, to his instinct, to his nature. He has zero control over himself. This is what he calls a true Russia. A person who doesn't begin to exercise the divine gift that Hashem gave us, that we're created in the image of Hashem. We're not animals. We're not instinctive creatures. We don't just follow whims and impulses. Um, but he's like a true Russia. And he has total, his heart is in total control. His mind is, is even his mind has no control of As much as he learns, and as much as he understands, and as much as he absorbs, has zero impact on his behavior. Zero impact on his heart. The heart, the mayach, does not have no control over his heart. That, that's what the rabbis mean, that the Russia, they have no control over their heart. They have no effective control. Their knowledge has no impact. Their awareness has no impact on them. All the learning, and all the understanding, and all the comprehension has zero impact on them. It doesn't affect his behavior. One iota. So how is it possible? Since we said earlier that there's a nature, it's an inherent nature, 
that God gave every human being, that mind over matter. And even though it's hard and difficult for us to relate to godly things, but once we use our mind to learn and to understand and to be aware of godly things, then that nature, that habit kicks in. Mind over matter. So how is it possible that the Rasha has no control over his heart? His mind, his awareness, has zero impact on his behavior. How is that possible? Shalterebu explained. The author previously stated that the ability of the mind to master the heart is natural and inherent in the mind. Why then do the wicked, Rishayim, lack this capacity? He answers, This is a punishment for the enormity and potency of their sinfulness. However, this raises another question. If they have in fact lost the ability to master their heart, how can it be very near to them to observe the mitzvot with their heart? In answer, the author states, He says the answer is that this is a punishment. You're right. It's not. It's unnatural. It is totally unnatural that the mind should have no effect on your behavior, on your heart. This is a punishment. Hashem punishes, just like Hashem punishes. One of Hashem's punishments is He removes from you the freedom of choice. A normal human being has freedom of choice. You can check your instincts. You can overcome your whims and your urges and your desires. But this is a punishment. When Hashem, when a person is a Russia, when a person has made negative choices in his life, has willingly, deliberately chose terrible choices, one of the punishments is that Hashem takes away from him his freedom of choice. And at that point, he's no longer in control of himself. He's like a puppet. It pains him. He wants to change. He's hurting. And yet he does, he's powerless. He doesn't have the power to change. He's helpless. He sinks deeper and deeper. And he's no longer enjoying it. It's not fun anymore. But he, he's powerless. He can't control. He's like a puppet. That's part of the punishment. Hashem took away from him. As a result, as a consequence of all the negative choices. And now he's sinking. He's sinking in, in quicksand. That is his punishment. Hashem took away the natural ability that every human being has. Unlike an animal to control themselves, they need out of control. And he becomes an addict, becomes addicted. He's addicted. He can't help himself. He lost his control. And that's the worst punishment. When a person becomes an addict, it's the worst punishment. That's how Maimonides explains why was he asked the question, why was Pare punished? for subjugating the Jewish people. It says, Hashem hardened his heart. If Hashem hardened his heart, he took away his freedom of choice. Why was he punished? If a person is a puppet, there's no, there's no point in reward or punishment. Reward or punishment is if we have freedom of choice. The foundation of Judaism is we believe in freedom of choice. That's the whole essence of Judaism. That God gives a person freedom of choice. And that's why there's reward and that's why there's punishment. That's why it's meaningful. Our behavior means something. Because every one of us at all times, all places have freedom of choice. So the question is, why was Pilate punished for not letting the Jews go when Hashem hardened his heart? He wasn't capable of letting the Jews go. And my mother is answers. Yes, he was not capable. But the reason he was not capable of, because that itself was a punishment. As a result of subjugating the Jewish people, oppressing the Jewish people so harshly for so long, that was his punishment. That Hashem took away his human ability of controlling himself, of checking his impulses and checking his urges and being able to overcome himself. 
and he just couldn't. His knowledge, his awareness, and he was self-destructive, and his awareness that there was a dead end. He couldn't fight against Hashem. Plague after plague after plague, it was hopeless. All his, all his advisors pointed out to him how hopeless it was. And yet, that knowledge had no impact on him. He just couldn't, he was out of control. He lost any, any, any self-control. And he went deeper and deeper and he was hurting and, he was, and yet he couldn't control it. He couldn't help himself. That's the ultimate punishment. And that goes against nature. Naturally, Hashem gave us the nature that mind over matter. We have the ability to control ourselves. When we're aware of something and we're um, aware of some, that something is good for us, we have the, it has the ability to impact us and to change our behavior. But he was robbed. Pyro was robbed of this gift, of this natural gift. And he simply wasn't able. That was part of the punishment. A consequence of all his previous choices that he made. It's evil choices. And that's why he just went, he sunk deeper and deeper into the quicksand and, and he was punished. So this is all part of the punishment. So to the Russia, a person who makes, who cold-bloodedly makes negative choices in life. It's a consequence of It's not even so much a punishment, it's a consequence. That you become an addict. You become addicted. You lose. Every human being is created in the image of Hashem. You have that ability, the God-given ability to make a choice. You lose that ability. You can no longer choose. You're out of control. You're powerless to change. You want to change. You're desperate to change. You're hurting. You're in pain. You're suffering. And you can't. The fun is long gone. In the beginning, maybe it was fun. Now it's not fun anymore. But you just, you're miserable. You can't change. It's part of the punishment. It's a consequence as a result of all the negative behavior and all your negative choices in the past and the accumulation of all, all those negative choices leads you to a very dark place, a Russia. You become a true Russia that you're no longer in control. You no longer have the ability to control it. So, which leads us to the question. How is it possible for a true Russia? When the Torah says, that being Jewish and living a Jewish lifestyle is something that's near and dear to each and every Jew. The question is, the Torah can't be speaking about this Russia. Because a Russia can't. You can't say it's close, it's near to each and every Jew to lead a Jewish life. The Russia can. Because the Russia is addicted. The Russia is out of control, just powerless. He's out of control. He can't change. Even with awareness, even with the presence of mind, with all of his understanding, it has zero impact on his behavior. That's, that's what happens to an addict. As much as you know, as much as you understand, it has no effect on your behavior. You can't change. You lost the ability to change. So how can the Torah say, the Torah is speaking to each and every Jew, how can the Torah say that being Jewish is something close to you? And al answers... The Torah does not speak of the dead, that is, those wicked ones who are considered dead, even during the lifetime. So you're right. The Torah is not speaking about the Russia. The Torah is speaking about every other human being, except the Russia, the true Russia. The Torah is speaking about the average person. The Torah speaks to the average person. The average person has the ability. And the way Hashem creates us, we all have the ability. Every one of us has the ability to be in charge, to be in control, to change through 
the mind through awareness, through developing an inner life, at least the rich inner life of the mind. Presence of the mind, awareness, that could lead us to mastering our heart, mastering our instincts, overcoming our urges and our desires, and doing the right thing. But every rule has an exception. The exception is the Russia. The Taylor is not speaking to the Russia. Because the Russia, even while he's alive, he's dead, spiritually dead. He's dead. The Russia has lost his ability to enjoy life. He's not only dead spiritually, the truth is he's also dead physically. He's dead inside. There's no spunk. There's no sparkle. There's no innocence. There's no life. There's no wholesomeness. The Russia is dead. The Russia has lost his ability to enjoy life. He has to constantly indulge and, and do things that are more far out because and he has to even descend into painful activities just to feel anything. He becomes numb. He no longer has the ability to feel, no longer has the ability to love, no, no longer has the ability. A person who indulges neuroticism loses the ability to truly love, to truly connect, loses the ability, just becomes psychotic, becomes cold, psychotic, disconnected, loses the ability to enjoy life. That's the biggest punishment. You become an addict, an addictive. You're out of control. So the Taylor is not speaking about such a person. Taylor doesn't speak to dead people. Taylor speaks to people who are alive. People are still connected to the source of life. People have a little humility. People have a little genuineness to them. People still feel a little regret. People whose heart is still function, still have some humane feelings, or able to empathize able to feel. Those are, those are the people who are alive. The Torah is speaking about those people. And the, when Hashem created us, we were all that way. Unless we made the wrong choices that led us to become addicted. No one is born addicted. It's our choices that lead us to addiction. But, nevertheless, it's not hopeless. The truth is, the Torah speaks to every Jew, even the addict. Because there is something that the addict can do that could help him change. And now he's going to give us, what's the antidote? What's the antidote to addiction? When a person hits rock bottom, when a person is so miserable, when you hit the lowest of the low and you can't go any lower when your misery when your pain is so deep your anguish is so unbearable that's when that actually gets to you that actually may reach you when a person hits rock bottom when your pain becomes unbearable, that breaks your heart. And as the great Hasidic Rebbe once said, the Russian Rebbe once said, he said, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. That's when you become humane again. That's when the spark, the divine, every human being is created in the image of Hashem. That's when that divine image is able to emerge again. That's when you connect once again 
when your heart is broken because the addict is is arrogant. The addict is totally disconnected from neshama, from any genuine feeling, from any genuine feeling of love, selflessness, goodness, kindness, compassion, empathy for another person. The addict is totally psychotic, disconnected, totally out of touch with himself and with everyone around him, causing misery to everyone around him and causing misery to himself. And, of course, he's always oblivious, the last one to know there's a problem. The addict is always the last one to know that there's a, there's a problem. But it's only when the addict reaches the bottom and he's in so, such, so much pain that he can no longer avoid the issue. He can no longer rationalize it. He can no longer blame everyone else except himself. And he can no longer just ignore it and say, I refuse to change. It's just unbearable. He can't live for another moment. When your heart becomes shattered in a thousand pieces, that's, that's the opening. That breaks, cracks the shell. That breaks the arrogance. When your heart is broken, then you're open. You're open to change. You're ready, you're ready to once again become a mensch. Once again, to feel godliness. To connect with something godly, something genuine, something real. So it is, ultimately, it is, even within the Russia's hands, it is within his hands to do Teshuvah. He has the possibility of doing Teshuvah. He has the possibility of breaking through that shell, that thick shell that's encrusted, that crust that covers up in his heart and covers up in his neshama and his soul and become, becomes like a vice, a trap, a prison, and doesn't allow... It's like a reinforced concrete bunker. It doesn't even allow a nuclear bomb to, to, to penetrate. It doesn't allow anything godly to penetrate. Nothing could reach him. Nothing could touch him. Nothing could move him. Nothing could open him up to change. But then from within, when his heart is so broken and shattered, when he's shattered into a thousand pieces, when the seed rots, now something can grow. When your ego and your arrogance and your coldness, when it, your whole superficial persona that you've created collapses, now you're ready to grow something real. Now you're ready to nourish and nurture and allow a real plant to grow, something real that can be nourished and nurtured and you can rebuild your life. Just like the second luchas. The second luchas, Moshe had to shatter the luchas. When he broke the luchas, when the Jews sinned, the ultimate sin, the ultimate perfidy, the most treacherous act in Jewish history, sin of the golden calf. Moshe, by breaking the luchas, broke their hearts into a thousand pieces. And the Jews saw Moshe shattering the luchas like shattered they, they felt it was just a reflection of how the Jews felt inside and that's what led them to do Teshuvah and that's what led them to obtain Hashem's forgiveness and Yom Kippur and to get the second Luchas 
And so much so that at the end of the Torah, the Torah ends off with Hashem thanking Moshe. Asher Shibarta. Yasher Koyah Asher Shibarta. Thank you for breaking. Because by breaking the Luchas, you broke the heart. And you were able to crack through the shell. And suddenly, all the inner beauty of the Jew, that Nisham, all the, the humanity of the all of that inner innocence, that child that's trapped within us, that childlike innocence, that's there. All along, but trapped and hidden and concealed and covered up and buried and submerged deep down. As a result of the shattering, that innocent, pure innocence, that little child, that wholesomeness, just emerged in all its beauty. And that's when the Jewish people were able to rebuild the shattered life. So it is within the hands of the, of the Russia, even the true Russia. A Russia the Torah calls dead. Not only is he spiritually dead, even in this world he's dead. Even when they're alive, they're dead because they're even physically dead. They're dead inside. There's no life. There's no spark. There's no innocence. You look in their eyes, they're jaded dead, lost the ability of enjoying pleasure and they have to go through crazy things just to feel anything, they feel so numb and jaded and numbed out and they just have to do, and go from one crazier thing to even a crazier thing just to feel anything because they become addicted addicted to materialism addicted to drunken materialism addicted whether it's addiction to money, whether it's addiction to drugs or alcohol or any addiction. But out of control. Powerless, out of control. A slave to their desire, a slave to every whim, a slave to every impulse, and a slave to nature. What people call today natural. This is, everyone should be authentically natural. This is a slave, an addict. And there's no soul. There's no God. There's no spark. There's no life. Even when they're alive, they're dead. And the Torah is not speaking about these people. The Torah speaks to the person who Hashem created us. We're mind over matter. But we have the ability to control our women instinct as a result of our meditation, reflection, and awareness, which has the ability to impact us and impact our behavior. But a person whose knowledge and awareness no longer impacts his behavior means he's totally out of control. Powerless. His heart is in total control. That's a true Russia. But nevertheless, even a true Russia has a path to work his way back to Hashem. And that is by doing Teshuvah. Indeed, it is impossible for the wicked to begin to serve God, that is to observe the mitzvot out of a feeling of love and fear of God, without first repenting for their past, in order to shatter the kalipod that were created by their sins, which form a sundering curtain and an iron wall that interposes between them and their Father in heaven. It uses two expressions, a curtain and a wall. The curtain is see-through. You can still, the curtain lets some of the light through. It dims the light, but it lets some of the light through. An iron wall doesn't let anything through. Like Russian's iron wall. Not a single person could pass through. The curtain, you can move the curtain. You can pass the curtain. The wall is a complete blockage. 
And this refers to, Rebbe explains, this refers to the, we learned earlier, there's the klipat noga, and then there's the three klipat. There's absolute, pure, unadulterated evil, and then there is the klipat noga, which is neutral. It has some good and some, some evil mixed in it. Plain materialism. Our daily lives, which is neutral. It's not a sin, it's not a mitzvah. We go about our business, we go about eating kosher, it's not a sin, it's not a mitzvah. But it has the potential to be elevated. But when we indulge in materialism per se, without any godly intent, it's a curtain. It's not a complete blockage, because we do have the ability to, to illuminate that experience. It's up to us. But then you have a mechitza shabarzal, an iron wall. It doesn't let anything through. That's klipa, that's absolute evil, that's a prohibition, absolute prohibition. But the Torah says, thou shalt not, it's absolutely prohibited, there's no light that can penetrate. But nevertheless, how do you, so how do you break this shell? How do you break through the curtain? And especially, how do you break through the iron wall? If a person, the addict, has fallen to a level where he's addicted to sin, addicted to things that are totally prohibited, absolutely prohibited, and that has created, every time we do a sin, it creates a, a wall between us and Hashem. Every time we indulge in something that's permissible, that's kosher, at least has the ability to be elevated, it creates a curtain between us and Hashem. When we indulge in something that's absolutely prohibited, we create an iron wall between us and Hashem. How can you penetrate that wall? How can you... So he says, how are these clipwoods shattered? Continue. How are these klipot shattered? By means of contriteness of heart and bitterness of soul over one's sins. As the Zohar interprets the verse, the sacrifices to the Almighty, Elohim, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. To mean that through one's breaking his heart, the unclean spirit of the Sitra Achra, the klipot, is broken. And this is a sacrifice that we offer to the divine name, Elohim. By a carbon, by a sacrifice, it always says, Reach Nichoyach Lashem. It's a pleasing aroma to Hashem, using Hashem's name of mercy, of compassion, Yud Ke Because there's a name of compassion and there's a name of justice. It's like a prosecutor and there's a, and there's a accuser and a prosecutor and then there's an advocate, a lawyer. So the carbon is an expression of Hashem's mercy. Hashem allows us to, uh, for forgiveness. But then you have Elohim. Elohim is the accuser, the prosecutor, it's the din, the justice. It's finding out, seeking out everything that's not right with us. The cup that's half empty. Versus the advocate always sees the cup that's half full, points out everything that's positive. But nevertheless, when a person, here he says, when a person has a broken heart, that touches even the name Elohim. That even the prosecuting angel, even the Hashem's attribute of prosecution of din, will, will be uh, humiliated, will, be, uh, will accept this type of teshuvah. Because when a person is brokenhearted, it touches. Even those that have something negative to say about you, it touches them. When you see a contrite heart, when you're bitter, and you're brokenhearted, and you're contrite about your behavior and your actions, then everyone has Rahmanas. Then you've transformed even the negative into a positive. Even the prosecutor also becomes an advocate for you. Now, once you show contriteness, it's like in criticism. We see it in human nature. If someone criticizes you, what's the best way to disarm them? 
Start criticizing yourself. And do a better job than that. If the person criticizes you, say, yes, you're absolutely right. It's absolutely inexcusable. And, and start criticizing yourself. And you'll see suddenly the person says, well, it's not so bad. It's <laughs> so terrible. Listen, we're human. We're, no one is perfect. All of a sudden, he's becoming your biggest advocate. No, and you say, no, 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 no. It's absolutely unforgivable. No excuses. And, and the more you criticize yourself, the more the person will, well, it's not so bad. You'll soften them up completely. That's just the way. You've taken, you've taken that. You've, you become your own critic. And you are bitter about your own situation. And you're brokenhearted about your own situation. And you're not looking for excuses, and you're not rationalizing it, and you're not excusing yourself, and you're blaming yourself, and you're taking responsibility, and you feel terrible and horrible. You totally disarm even the shemalot, even the attribute of din. It's totally disarmed and, and accepts your carbon. That's what he says, zivchei alakim. This is a sacrifice to the name alakim, that even the name alakim will accept this atonement and accept this heart contrition. It's when you come to court and you have no contrition that the name of Elohim, the prosecutor is merciless. But if you come with a broken heart and you accept full responsibility and you, and, and you blame yourself and you take, then all hearts melt. Everyone, everyone becomes your, your advocate. So then the klipa is broken. And this is a sacrifice you offer to the divine name of Elohim. When speaking of the sacrifices and the laws pertaining to them, the Torah mentions only the divine name Havaya, as in the oft-repeated phrase describing the sacrifices, an appealing fragrance to God, Havaya. No mention is made of a sacrifice to the divine name Elohim. One asks the Zohar, does constitute a sacrifice to that name? The Zohar interprets the previously quoted verses answering this question. The sacrifice to Elohim is a broken spirit, that is, breaking the spirit of the Sitra Achra, and this is accomplished by means of a broken and contrite heart. See Zohar on Parshat Pinchas, page 240, and on Parshat Vayikra, page 8, and page 5a, and the commentary of Rabbi Moshe Zakuto thereon. Returning now to his original point, that the wicked cannot begin serving God with love and fear before repenting their sins, the Alter Rebbe says, this is a lower category of repentance, whereby the lower letter He is raised up from its fall into the forces of evil, the klipot. Teshuva, repentance, forms the words returning the He. This implies that repentance returns the He of the divine name, Havaya, to its proper place. The higher category of Teshuva returns the higher, the first He, to the Yud preceding it, while the lower form of teshuva returns the lower he to the vav preceding it. The teshuva mentioned earlier as a prerequisite for love and fear of God is of the lower category. Hey, tell um, the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe had a, had a wicked sense of humor. Him and his Rebbe, Rivka. Um, but he said in all his humor... It's actually a lot of depth. And uh, they say one time, one, one, a chassid had a cow. And the cow stopped giving milk. And that was his whole livelihood. So he went to some spiritual leader, to some other rebbe, and he says, I don't, know what, I don't understand what happened. My cow, my only source of livelihood, just dried up on me. And... 
and that this, the tzaddik told him it's because you must have done something that affected the hay, the higher hay of Hashem's name. Hashem's name, you have two hays, yud ke vav ke. And therefore, from para, which is a female cow, instead, since you remove the hay, you've affected the hay, you've reduced it to par, a male. Therefore, it's not giving any milk. So he comes to the Rebbe Marash, with the Baruch Rebbe, and the Rebbe Marash says, and I think the problem is you've affected the hay tata, the lower hay. In Hashem's name, there's a higher hay, the first hay, yud K, closer to the yud, and then vav K, the last letter. I think you're not feeding the animal hay. <laughs> the animal hay, it's like giving any milk. You got to feed the poor animal. If you want to produce some milk, you got to feed the poor animal. But there is there is a a higher hay and there's a lower hay. So teshuva, the word teshuva, the Zohar says, is made up of two words: tashuv, hay. You have to restore. You have to return the hay to its proper place. When a person sins, you affect Hashem's name because we are connected with Hashem. We are created in the image of Hashem. Even our physical body is actually a reflection of Hashem's name. Yud is the head. The hay is like the, the torso. Uh, I'm sorry, the hay is the, the two hands. And the, the vav is, is the torso. And the final hay um, is the bottom of the person, the legs. So you see that even physically a person is a reflection of Hashem's name. So everything that we do affects Hashem, has an impact on Hashem Himself. Not only do we affect all the, the entire universe, all of the worlds, the upper worlds, the lower worlds, the material worlds, the spiritual realms, the angelic realms, higher levels of consciousness, we even affect Hashem Himself. So our behavior actually affects Hashem. And we affect Hashem's name. And we've diminished the hay of Hashem. The higher hay and the lower hay. And therefore, teshuva, how do we do teshuva? Teshuva means restoring. A restoration project. Restoring the hay to its proper place. So the first step of teshuva is restoring the lower hay. Restoring the lower hay of Hashem. And that's called the lower level of teshuva. Because when a person is in the world of klipa and there is an iron barrier between him and Hashem, the first step is just to create a connection. Create a connection just, just to come back to the basic, the elementary, fundamental, the basic level of having some inner life, having some inner connection with Hashem, some feeling for godly things. And that's how you restore the first, the last hay, the lower hay, the latter hay. That's, that's the, the, the entry level. Without that, they can't jump to restoring the higher hay, which is a higher level of teshuvah, a deeper level of teshuvah. First, you had to start with the basic, the elementary, the basic level of teshuvah. When there's no connection between you and Hashem, you don't feel anything. You don't respond anymore to anything, God. Godliness has no hold in you, has no impact in you. With all your knowledge and awareness, it means nothing, and it, you can't, it doesn't affect your behavior. Then you can't, you can't uh, there's no point of contact. So the first level of teshuva is the lower level, is the tush of hay. You have to restore the hay back to its proper place. 
And then you, you have some sort of connection. You have an entry level. Connection with Hashem. And that's by, by having a shattered heart, a broken heart. By feeling bitterness. It's like a person running away from death. When you've hit rock bottom. And you feel so dead inside. And you feel you're in such pain, in such anguish, you can no longer ignore it. You must deal with it. You can't run away anymore. And, and your heart is shattered to a thousand pieces. Now you're ready to connect. Connect with Hashem. On the most basic and the most elemental level. This fall of the lower hair of the divine name into the Kalipat is the mystery of the Shekhinah, the divine presence in exile. As our sages have said, when the Jews were exiled to Edom, the Shekhinah went into exile with them. It's not only when the Jewish people as a whole, but also every individual Jew. So what does it mean the Shekhinah is in exile? The Shekhinah is holiness. How can the holiness go into exile? Because it's a result of our behavior. We cause the Shekhinah. Because we are connected to the Shekhinah. We are connected to holiness. We have, we have a godly energy inside of us. And therefore, when we act in a way that's inappropriate, we take that energy that we have, we take that divine godly energy, and we bring it down into, into, into exile. So Hashem, it's like, it's like Hashem is in prison. We've taken Hashem, we've taken this divine, holy, godly energy, and because Hashem has given us freedom of choice, you know, Hashem is the ultimate gambler because He has put His destiny in our hands. Whatever we do affects Him. And we have, we have genuine freedom of choice. So if we make a wrong choice, He is affected. Hashem is an exile. Hashem is personally affected. Hashem is in prison. Hashem suffers as a result of our choice. Because there is no choice. We are inseparable from Hashem. We have a divine spark inside of us. We have a holy neshama. We are created in the image of Hashem. So we have godly, we have a godly energy inside of us. And if we misuse that energy and take that energy and, uh, and use it for the wrong things, the energy is there. You can't separate yourself from Hashem. That choice we don't have. Hashem will always be with us. Even in our state of impurity. So it's our choice whether Hashem is free, whether the Shekhinah, Hashem's presence, is free, revealed, or, God forbid, we imprison Hashem. And Hashem suffers. Hashem is in gold. Hashem is in exile. And we cause the exile. Because we are a microcosm of the entire world. Whatever happens in our own personal lives, whatever happens in our hearts, is really a reflection of what's going on in the world. Any change that we make inside of our own hearts will affect the whole universe, the whole world. Any positive change, and vice versa, any negative thing in our own life, directly impacts the entire world, the entire universe, and directly impacts Hashem. So if the divine spark inside of us is hidden, and concealed, and trapped, because we become addicted as a result of our choices. So much so that we become totally psychotic, disconnected from our true self, from any sense of humaneness and humanity, of mental kind, of any compassion, genuine feeling for another person. 
we cause Hashem to go in exile. Hashem's presence becomes totally concealed. The Shechina, by definition, the Shechina is, means Hashem's presence is felt. When the Shechina is hidden, when the Shechina can no longer manifest itself, that is, that is the most painful thing for the Shechina. It's the antithesis of what the Shechina is all about. When the temple existed, it means Hashem was manifest. With ten miracles in the temple, Hashem's presence was manifest. What do you mean there is no temple? The fact there is no temple is just a symptom. That means that the Shekhinah is no longer manifest. Godliness is not manifest. Why? Because godliness is not manifest in our own hearts, in our own lives. Because we become so disconnected. And therefore the Shekhinah is in pain. Because the whole essence of the Shekhinah is about being manifest, intangible, feeling the reality of Hashem's presence. When Hashem's presence is no longer tangible and felt, that is the deepest, darkest exile. The Shechina is in agony. Hashem is in agony. Hashem is suffering. So when a person sins, and we create that barrier, that iron curtain between us and Hashem, the iron wall, which blocks our hearts and ourselves from our godly spark, And we become so degraded that we, we are powerless. We lose any control of our hearts. We can no longer control our behavior. Our mind has zero impact. Our knowledge and learning and awareness has zero impact on our behavior. That causes the Shekhinah to go into exile. In hiding. And that's, that's such agony for the Shekhinah. It's like imprisonment. Why is prison one of the worst things? Why is prison like death? Because you're no longer free. You're locked up in prison. You can't express yourself. The Shechina wants to express itself. Wants to be free. Express itself. Manifest. Be present. When Hashem's presence is forced to be concealed, Hashem's presence no longer felt, Hashem is in prison. It's in exile. It's in pain. Hashem is in pain. It's in agony. And that's why when we daven, we daven for... The redemption for Gaullah is not just us that needs redemption. Hashem needs redemption. Hashem is suffering. The Shechidna is suffering. Is in pain, is in agony. Terrible agony. Every moment that there's no Beis Amigdash, Beis Amigdash is just a symptom. But every moment that Mashiach has come, no Beis Amigdash means that the Shechidna is in terrible agony. Because it's not, it's not manifest as a result of our behavior. That's what, that's what the, that's why the Razal say, that the Shekhinah is together with the Jew. The Shekhinah is in exile together with us. When the Jew goes into exile, the Shekhinah goes into exile. And he explains, because the Shekhinah goes into exile as a result of our behavior. In a spiritual sense, in terms of one's service to God, this statement means that when one acts like Edom, the embodiment of evil, when he sins, he degrades and draws down to Edom, to the Klippot, the divine spark which vitalizes his nefesh, ruach, and neshama with godly, holy life. In this way, the Shekhinah within him is drawn into exile. What constitutes exile in this case is the fact that the divine spark gives life to his godly soul, which is clothed in the animal soul of Kalipa situated in the left part of his heart. And as long as he remains wicked, 
the animal soul reigns over him, dominating his small city, his body. Thus the divine spark within his godly soul is in exile in the kalipas of his animal soul. The nefesh, ruach, and neshama are thus held captive in exile under it. A captive not only lacks the freedom to act as he wishes, but is also forced to carry out the wishes of his captor. The divine spark within the soul, however, although in exile, is still not in captivity. It has merely lost its ability to affect the person with its godly vitality. So it's an exile. It no longer has any power over you. So formerly it was in control. We were, it was king. It was on top of the world. And now the godly spark is an exile, powerless. So when the godly spark loses its ability to control the person, it has no impact on you. There's no power over you. There's no effect. It can't affect any change. It can't change you. You're powerless to change. So the spark inside of you is an exile. It's been exiled. It's been rendered meaningless. It has no power, no control. And that's very painful. Foot for the nisham. And that leads, as a consequence, that's why the Jewish people are in exile. And that's why Hashem is in exile. Why truth is in exile. And godliness is in exile. And everything that's good and decent and wholesome is in exile doesn't seem to have a power or an effect or an impact on the external world. Godliness is not triumphant. Lies are triumphant. Power, politics, not truth and not genuineness, not godliness. This is the meaning of exile. But there is also there is also a the idea that It says, when a Jew sins, even though a Jew sins, he's a Jew. Even when a Jew sins, he's Israel. So based on the teachings of Baal Shem Tev, Rebbe explains that even when a Jew sins, you can see that they're Jewish. Because the truth is that a Jew is godly. And everything that he does ultimately is godly. And therefore, even this sin, you see an expression of his godliness. Firstly, the fact that a Jew can have such an impact, that a sin can have such an impact on the entire world and on Hashem himself. That alone points to how plugged in a Jew is, how connected a Jew is. Even when he sins, you see his Jewishness. Because a Jew has godly energies, infinite energies, infinite abilities. That's why Jews are revolutionaries. But if we utilize... (coughs) This ability properly it's constructive. There's nothing holier, there's nothing greater. It's the biggest gift, it's a source of blessing. But when a Jew uses his revolutionary abilities in a negative way, then you end up with all the false isms and all the attempted substitutes for the one genuineism, which is Judaism, communism, and all the isms. And all the havoc that was wreaked in this world as a result of all these isms, which was all powered by Jews. As the Rebbe once said, he says, a Jew believes. If he doesn't use this ability to believe, if he doesn't believe Hashem, he believes the guy. The Jews put their trust and use their ability to believe, abuse that ability. 
the gift that Hashem gave us and used it to believe with blind faith something that didn't deserve that, that blind faith. So that ability is there. There's no escaping that ability. Because there's something godly about the Jew. Our minds are wired differently. We don't think like everyone else. Everyone else naturally looks out for number one. The Jew is the only one. Even when he's misguided. Well, say, you know, I have to think about the welfare of other people. I have to put their welfare ahead of mine. But even when a Jew makes a mistake, you, can, you see the Jewishness in the outside. You see that because they have a godly spark. And when you use this infinite divine energy, this gift that Hashem gave us, and you abuse it, and you use it, in the, you use it for the wrong things, then you actually captivate this divine spark. It's captive. It's being misused and abused for the wrong things. You're taking this ability, this infinite divine ability that Hashem gave you, and you're putting it to use for all the wrong reasons. So that's how the Shekhinah is captive. But here he's discussing that the Shekhinah is in exile. The Shekhinah is in exile because it's, it's no longer effective. It's rendered uh, useless, has no power. It's, it's an exile. From, from being on top of the world, now the Shechidna has become it's an exile. Exile from power. No one has any power over it. It has no effect on your life. It has no impact on your life. You can study Torah. You can be aware. You can meditate. You can reflect. It has no impact. It has no power over it. It has no zero impact on your life. It doesn't change your behavior. It doesn't change. You can't check your instincts. You can't check your urges. You can't check your impulses. It zero, has zero effect. As if you never learned. As if you never understood. It meant nothing. It means nothing. You're powerless. You're, you're like an addict. You're out of control. The Shekhinah is an exile. The divine spark inside of you is an exile. It has no power over it. It's been totally divorced and disconnected from your conscious self, from your, from your surface self, from your behavior. As much as you know and learn and understand, it has no impact on your behavior. It doesn't change. This is a deep exile. This is a dark exile. And this, this leads to an exile on a global scale. The macrocosm is a reflection of the microcosm. When we are in exile internally, that, as a consequence, Hashem is in exile. The whole world is in exile. That Hashem, godliness, truth, genuineness has no impact on the, on the political, on the, on the external world. In the battle between Jerusalem and Athens, Athens is winning. Jerusalem is not having the impact that it should be having. Instead of Jerusalem leading the world and being the light unto the nation and the conscience unto the world, it's hidden, it's an exile, it's powerless. It's ineffective. It's not translating into, into change. That means godliness is an exile. Truth is an exile. What's normal, what's decent, what's moral, what's ethical, what's genuine, what's authentic is an exile. It has, has no impact, has no power. And that's a direct result and consequence of what's going on inside of us personally. 
Because when the divine spark inside of us has no power, it has no impact over us, it doesn't have the power to change us, to change our behavior, bottom line, to change our behavior, to help us check our instincts, overcome our nature, and all the learning in the world, and all the learning, understanding in the world, and all the awareness in the world has no impact on us, then we cause the Shekhinah to go into exile. Then the same is true in a macrocosm. Godliness doesn't have any impact. It should have. On the entire world. And that's why there's no temple. That's why Jews are in exile. And the only way to break this klippa is through genuine remorse, a sense of bitterness, a bitter heart, a contrite heart, a broken heart. When your heart is broken into a thousand pieces and you're genuinely broken hearted, internally broken hearted, that's how you break the klippa, you break the shell. When you break the shell, then the neshama, the divine spark, it once again begin to function as a force in our life, as a power in our life, as an opinion in our life. It affects our life. It changes us. And only then could you restore the humanity within the person. That the person could revert back to his original nature where mind over matter, where mind is in control over, over your heart. And you can control your heart and control your behavior. When the heart of the Rashri is broken within him, and thereby the spirit of uncleanliness and of the Sitra Akhra are broken, and the forces of evil are dispersed, then the lower hay of the divine name, the Shekhinah, rises from its fall and stands firm, as discussed elsewhere. Only when he repents and thereby frees the Shekhinah from exile and allows a divine spark within him to affect his soul and body, may he begin to serve God with love and fear. So whatever happens within us internally affects the entire world, because we are the microcosm. Not only negative, also positive. How much more so positive? It says in the Medrash, if there was one tzaddik, if there was one genuine tzaddik, it says then Mashiach would come immediately. Because if there's one Jew who's perfect, who's whole, that wholeness would spread to the whole world. Because we're all connected. There isn't one? Apparently not. Then it would spread to the whole world. And this is reflected in halacha. Halacha says that a person is always obligated to view himself in the entire world as being on an equal scale. By doing a single mitzvah in thought, speech, and action, you have the power to single-handedly tip the scale and bring redemption to the whole world. Because we are a microcosm. Whatever happens in our own hearts, the slightest change that we make to the positive in our own heart, creates a revolution, an atomic explosion in the entire universe in ways that we, we, that we can't fathom. Just like we can't fathom a, a NASA scientist sitting, sitting in, in Texas and at controls, he presses a button and he causes something to happen hundreds of millions of miles away. What's the connection? We don't see the connection. I do, and I put on tefillin, and that has an impact on the entire universe, global impact. You light a Shabbos candle, global warming, in a positive sense. <laughs> global lighting. You don't see that. You don't see the connection. But it doesn't change the reality, the reality is that the slightest change for good inside of us has an impact in the world. So when we achieve in our own personal lives, when we release and redeem the Shekhinah from its exile, what do, what do you mean releasing the Shekhinah from its exile? 
The Shekhinah is Hashem's manifestation and presence. When the divine spark inside of us becomes manifest in our life, and we feel its presence, and we sense its power, and we sense its reality, because it impacts our life, and it has a control of our life. And we exercise our God-given nature of mind over matter, where the mind controls the heart, can check your instincts, and overcome your nature, as a result of your learning and awareness and meditation and reflection, and you have an inner life, an inner richness, a connection with God, and Hashem becomes a reality in your life, this will have a direct impact on the world around us. That Hashem's presence will emerge from exile, and Hashem's presence will become manifest in, in, in this world. You feel and sense Hashem's presence in godly things, godliness and godly ideas and truth and genuineness will become manifest. So it's all a result, it's all a consequence of what's happening inside of us. So even the Russia, ultimately, even the Russia, true Russia, who as a result of his bad choices, as a punishment, has become a true Russia, that he's totally powerless to change. He's totally out of control. He's psychotic, disconnected. No connection to reality. Has lost his humanity. Has lost his humaneness. Doesn't know how to treat people humanely. Even that Russia, there's a way. There's a way back. That Russia, it's within his choice. It's within his power to reconnect by doing teshuva. But without doing teshuva, he has no point of contact. He has no entry. He can't even begin to connect with Hashem. Unless his heart is broken, genuinely broken. He's really hit rock bottom. And he's really bitter and shattered to a thousand pieces. And it's only then that he's able to rebuild his life. We have 20 million recovered alcoholics in this country, recovered addicts. Only after they hit rock bottom were they open to change and were they able to start rebuilding their shattered lives. Because as long as your heart is still closed and you're arrogant, there's no chance, there's no openness for change. The Torah doesn't speak about such a shayim. He's a Russia Bemis. The Tanya calls him a Russia, a true Russia. Yes, he may be observing Torah and mitzvot because there's no challenge. When there's no challenge, it's very easy to do Torah and mitzvot. But in the areas in your life that are a challenge, in the areas in your life that you're addicted and you're out of control, you're a true Russia. Doing Torah and mitzvot when there's no challenge means nothing. Is doing Torah and Mitzvah in the area where it is a challenge. And when the person can't control himself, and, he, and it hurts him when he can't control himself. He's powerless to change, and he's not enjoying it. He just he can't control himself. There's nothing I can do. But the Torah says you're a Rush. You're a true Rush. You're out of control. You lost that godly ability, divine ability of mind over matter, of controlling yourself, checking your instincts, checking your impulse, overcoming your whims and your nature. It's the only thing that distinguishes us from animals. And so unless that Jew, the Russia, truly achieves a broken heart, is truly broken hearted about a situation, that he's sunk so low, and he's so far away, and he's so disconnected, that even the, even the Torah says, you're Russia, that you're dead. Spiritually dead, and also physically dead. Because your life is not a life. You don't have a life. That's not a life. You've lost the ability to enjoy life. 
You're self-destructive. You destroy everything around you. And if a person, only when a Jew is truly broken-hearted, and your life is shattered, like Moshe broke the luchis, and broken, your heart is broken to a thousand pieces, then that's the fertile ground. Now you can reconnect. Now you can emerge. The, the childlike innocence inside of you, that divine spark could finally begin to emerge, could leave its exile, and once again start functioning in your life, being a power in your life, a force in your life, a conscious force in your life, that could consciously change your life, and change your behavior, and live your life accordingly, a life that's consistent with your godly spark within, and ha- develop a rich inner life, at least in your mind, right? develop a rich inner life, and firm conviction uh, to lead a life that's consistent with that conviction, then, so then, you once again join the ranks, you, you join the ranks and the Torah addresses that person. The Torah addresses each and every Jew. That being Jewish and having an inner life and having an inner feeling towards godliness and towards godly things, like Torah and mitzvot, is something that's near and dear to each and every Jew. I want to conclude in summary. In summary, it is indeed very near to us to love and fear God. If we are able to create at least an intellectual emotion by means of our mind, which is under our control even if our heart is not. However, this does not apply to the Rasha, who is a slave to the desire of his animal soul and must repent before beginning to serve God with love and fear. To be continued.